and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 343 and my conversation with the Associate Professor of Kinesiology at Windsor University in Canada, Dr. Nadia Azar, and we'll check back in with her shortly. We are very close to the end of the academic semester here at Mizzou. Right now, we're in the final week of classes, and this past weekend and week were filled with a lot of final recitals, both with large and small ensembles, along with student groups and student recitals. It was also the annual Missouri State Music Solo and Ensemble Festival, which Mizzou hosts every year. So that was going on. And there currently is and will be a lot of grading happening to finish out. So that's the big plan at this point. As is often the case, it's both great to be finishing up for the academic year, and I'm honestly sad to be completing my time with this group of students. I've really enjoyed working with all of them. So why am I talking to a professor of kinesiology on this podcast? Well, Nadia Azar and I got connected through another famous Canadian. That would be multiple-time previous podcast guest, Victoria Sparks. I was aware of Nadia due to the research that she's been presenting at recent PASICs on the athleticism, performance abilities, and injuries of rock and roll drum set players. And we'll talk extensively about her research during the interview. Additionally, Nadia's job is in the field of kinesiology and specific to biomechanics, human factors, and ergonomics. And drums, right? Well, no. But Nadia's musical background includes growing up and playing a lot of piano in her youth and being a major fan of rock music all her life, which we do talk about. And we get into the specifics of her job, her teaching background, her love of books, and lots more throughout. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom in two segments on April 3rd and April 27th, 2023, and it begins right now. So Nadia, tell me what your job is, kind of full-time, and then we'll get into the research part. Well, the research is actually part of my full-time job. So I'm an associate professor of kinesiology at the University of Windsor, which is in Windsor, Ontario. And uh, that entails teaching, research, and service to the university and the academic community. So uh, I teach courses in biomechanics and a little bit of physiology and... um, my research, as you know, is on the physical demands of playing the drums. On the teaching side, what kinds of courses do you end up teaching? Is, do you have a, is there a situation where you, are, you get to teach kind of the range of your field or do you have to, are you stuck to kind of like teaching a lot of like early in the, in the progress of a student kinds of courses? I actually teach at all levels. So I teach an introductory biomechanics course to our first year students, like first semester, first year. I'm one of the first faces they see. And then I teach a couple of upper year courses, third and fourth year students uh, in biomechanics and a course on um, the mechanisms behind how people feel pain. 
And then I teach a graduate level course, uh, which is on, it's called Applied Biomechanics of Human Performance. So we take a seminar approach for that one and the students kind of uh, set the, the course of the subjects that we cover. Um, and it's very much project-based and, and discovery-based in that course. So I do teach the gamut of, of students in, in terms of where they fall in their academic path. You know, in that particular discipline, what do you find brings, and you could, you could answer this for yourself, but I'm, I'm curious also, what do you find brings students to that course of study? The, one of the great things, so I actually, my undergrad and master's degree are in kinesiology from this very program. Okay. Um, and what drew me to it, and I think what draws a lot of students to it, mainly because there is such a broad, kinesiology is a huge field. There are so many sub-disciplines to it. So if you're kind of not sure where you want to go, um, kinesiology is a great place to start out especially, uh, well, so I teach, we have two majors, movement science and sport management and leadership. Um, so the sport management and leadership is more like the business end of sports and our, the movement science is more the health and sciences domain. So, um, you know, we get students who come in who want to be physiotherapists or ergonomists or sports psychologists or work with children or, uh, want to go to med school or, all kinds of, you know, all kinds of things. And they can change their minds pretty easily throughout the course of their, their undergrad, you know, by studying, you know, different streams within and taking a breadth of different courses from the different domains. And so I, I think that's one thing that really appeals is the, the um, multiple possibilities that arise from a kinesiology degree. Excellent. Does that also include athletic training? Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, athletic training, athletic therapy, um, coaching, uh, you know, uh, athletic equipment design um, and testing, teachers college. I mean, there's just so many potential career paths that, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very broad. Gotcha. Back in back in my former life, I, I I was a psych major until I flamed out and was terrible. Um, but I know that there was there's like kind of like some of the early courses, and then there's like a research methods thing that was usually mm. lead out. Like if you got through that, then you were fine. If you didn't, like it was over. And, yeah. and is there something like that, or like in a more applied thing that happens kind of in the middle, where it's like this is the where people start to to branch off. You know, uh, we, we definitely don't have any courses that are designed to be, you know, weed out courses. Sure. I think where the students start getting a real taste of whether they chose wisely is in third and fourth year. We have um, lab, lab courses. Yep. There are three different lab courses in movement science and students have to take two to graduate. So there's a psychomotor behavior, which is like sports psychology and motor behavior. There's the biomechanics and ergonomics lab, and then there's the physiology lab. So students, and those are very hands-on, um, basically applying all the concepts they've learned in all the other classes to actual like real world analyses and, and things like that. Um, so I think that's where they kind of get a sense of like, okay, yeah, I love this, or I really did not enjoy that. They, I think that's maybe where that happens, but not so much because of their performance, maybe just sort of the discovery of, you know, 
trying that out. And same with, we also have courses in, uh, like we do a lot of applied learning in our program. So we have a co-op program. We have an undergraduate internship course where the students can go and work for an organization in the community for, I think it's about 110 hours in a semester. And that really helps them get, and we have, of course, you know, an undergraduate thesis um, project that they can elect to take. It's not required. Though all of those combinations of things really help students figure out what I'm going to do with this degree or what do I want to do? And I know I was in the co-op program. I did a placement in ergonomics uh, where I was, you know, in a, in an assembly plant and I didn't mind it, but I didn't love it. So I was sort of like, okay, where, you know, what do I want to try next? I, I did a work term in a, or a, a short work stint with a physiotherapist office and found I really did not enjoy the clinical, like the repetitiveness of the clinical work, which, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of our students come in like, oh, I'm going to be a physiotherapist. And, you know, so I was really glad that I did that because if I hadn't, I might've applied, got into it, realized I did not enjoy this. And then I'm, you know, six years into a career and education that I'm not all that happy about. Yeah. yeah, So, yeah. So I would say it's probably those, Uh, we do have research methods and statistics that every student in our program is required to take. Um, But uh, I don't think those are the courses that I, I, a lot of students don't necessarily love those courses. Um, But I don't think those are necessarily the ones where they kind of go, Oh, maybe kinesiology isn't for me because most degree programs are going to make you take <laughs> something to that effect. Yeah, I hear you. That's great. Does that mean that there's a lot of uh, local places or, or there, there is actually within Windsor, right? Is the, te- that's the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So there are a lot of places locally that, that actually they can, they can get hands-on work in, or even if it's specifically connected to the university. Yeah, so we do have a lot of placements for, especially for the undergraduate interns, we have a lot of those in-house. So students who volunteer as the athletic trainer for, say, one of our basketball teams for a semester or even for a season, but they can get course credit for that by doing it as an internship. Um, A lot of the local organizations, you know, physio offices, gyms, um, parks and rec, like recreation type places, facilities, Um, especially again with the undergraduate internship, because it's a short term and those ones are volunteer, like volunteer because it's for course credit. Um, most, I should say some do get paid, but, um, you know, it's easy to take students on for, you know, a few hours and one semester sort of thing. So we do get a lot of uptake with that. I think co-op is a little bit more challenging because it's meant to be a full-time job, um, for, four months. So those, I'm not involved in the co-op program, so I don't really know how difficult it is to get those. Um, but you know, you hear things every now and then about students having a hard time finding placements and that sort of thing. But our students do go, uh, they can, they can do their co-op pretty much anywhere. And same with the internship, really, you know, we have students who are from out of town, they go home for the summer, but want to pick up a course credit. So they might intern at a gym for the summer or at a clinic or whatever, and they can do that in their hometown or even in a home country. Um, so we're pretty flexible with that as long as we can find a place <laughs> that'll take them basically. Yeah. But you, Oh man, see this, it's interesting. Nadia, you just gave me an idea with our marching band. Cause, mm. cause I'm, I'm one of the assistant directors here and we've always <clears throat> had a need for an athletic trainer and it hadn't. Mm. And it's one of those, like we like, it's not super common for that. Yeah. But 
is one of those things where it's like, oh, if we could tie it into a course credit, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there's a way in because yeah. like, we just do it ourselves, basically, or we have a grad student who kind of oversees it, but we're not, none of us are trained in it. Right. But. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. And I mean, I don't know how your institution, if you have a kinesiology program or even some of the more um, like professional programs like physiotherapy or athletic therapy, um, you know, they might have students who are either looking for volunteer hours for experience or maybe want to do internship for course credit. Um you know, I, I would suggest checking those programs to see if they already have something. Maybe the students just haven't thought that marching band is a place where they can apply their skills. Um, you know, so they're not coming to you because they don't realize that they are needed there, which really sort of speaks to a lot to the performing arts medicine <laughs> specialty, uh, you know, as a whole. That's that seems to be a common theme. Yeah. No, but I'm glad. Thank you for, for, for allowing me to think that through. That's really helpful yeah. uh, on my end. Well, let's, let's dig in now because your, as you said, your research is on drum set players. How, what was your way in so that this would become kind of the thing that's been the focus of your research? Uh, well, it sort of fell in my lap a few okay. years ago. Let me preface it by saying I've been a musician for most of my life. I'm classically trained in piano. Um, I took music lessons from multiple other instruments. So I'd always kind of thought that it'd be fun to apply kinesiology to musicians at some point, but never really got around to it until this random Twitter interaction that I had with Mike Mangini of Dream Theater, where we, uh, you know, he said something about feeling sore from playing the drums because it's like a boxing kind of workout not because he's hurt. And uh, so I tweeted back at him something about being a researcher and I'd love to study your technique and message me if you're interested. And he did. And so we went back and forth and had a conversation. And, you know, as I started digging into research literature, realized there was like a, a handful of papers on the physical aspects of playing the drums. Um, and really not much, on any one aspect and injury injuries in drummers was, you know, there was next to nothing. So I I saw this and thought, wow, this is really an area where I can make an impact and, and do some work to, you know, try to expand the knowledge base here. And so that's what I started doing. And over time that just kind of became, uh, you know, I was involved in other projects at the time and I enjoyed those projects, but this sort of became like mine. And so it uh, it ended up being like I took over that as essentially my sole focus on research. And I've just, I haven't really looked back because I just enjoy it so much. I love the area of performing arts medicine. Now, were, were you familiar with Dream Theater prior to this? Oh, yeah. Dream okay. Theater is one of my favorite bands. Yeah. Okay, awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No, I had been following Mike for a while. Um, yeah. And, uh, but never really interacted on social media at that point. And something just made me do it. And yeah. I did thinking maybe I'll get like, Oh, he'll like it and move on kind sure. of thing. But yeah, I never imagined that one tweet would lead to, you know, an entire research program and career change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and what's hilarious is, is like you pick the, like maybe the most active drummer for style, in like in that job, it's, I mean, every time I've listened to dream theater, my brain, I can only do like 10 minutes and my brain just kind of shatters <laughs> all these pieces. Maybe yeah. you're, maybe you can handle longer than that, but 
Well, I'm not really absorbing it musically in terms of like dissecting it as a drummer, right? Uh, So I can take it for a long time because I'm just sort of enjoying it for what it is. But I don't really think about it beyond like, wow, that was really complex or whoa, that, you know, time signature change was crazy. And then I let it go after that. (laughs) So Fair enough. Um, When you you start (laughs) work, when you start working with them, what what kind of equipment could you do you use to even try to start gathering data? Well, it started with um, in terms of the the stuff that I do with drummers while they're playing live on stage. It started with these activity trackers um, that are very much like a Fitbit, but slightly different technology. Um, and you wear them on your upper arm instead of on your wrist. Uh, it started with that. Um, again, Mike had tweeted something about, you know, guessing how many calories he burns during a show. And by then we were already communicating. So I, I emailed him right away. I'm like, if you want to actually find out for yourself, we can do this. I have these things. They, they're very, do I have one nearby? Yeah, I do. Hold on one second. I'll show you. They are very unobtrusive. There are no cables or like anything to kind of get in your way and distract you while you're playing. Yeah, okay, yeah. So basically they're called body media armbands. Um, mm-hmm. And they basically, it's like a little, maybe two inch by two inch device that goes, uh, gets basically strapped onto like around your bicep. Mm-hmm. And there are sensors within it and on the back of it that transmit through the skin and monitor your motion and your body temperature or skin temperature, I should say, and how much you're sweating and things like that. And it takes all that information and spits out an estimate of your energy expenditure, like how many calories per minute kind of thing. Um, So Mike wore those on stage and we got some data. And then uh, another local drummer, Jeff Burrows of the Tea Party, he lives in Windsor. So he, you know, heard about this and wanted to do it. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, And then after a few participants, I started monitoring heart rate. So I use a polar heart rate monitor. So it's a strap that goes around your chest and there's a little device that gets clipped to that. Again, no wires, no cables, nothing that's distracting. It's just a a band that goes around your chest and it monitors heart rate and beats per minute. And then I can take that and do all kinds of things with it. Um, Is that what what a lot of, I'm sorry, is that what a lot of soccer players wear? That like when they'll, they'll like have like the, strap or like like they'll remove their shirt after um like after a match to probably give it to another person this is usually male soccer players but then they've got like what looks like almost a bra but it's a but it's that right yeah so yeah there are a few different a few different ways to strap them on there is one that almost does is basically a bra this Mm -hmm. one is just a strap uh it's like maybe one inch tall and then it goes around you know, your, your chest. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, you can buy those at any sporting goods store. Um, but they're, they're really well-designed they are used in research, Mm -hmm. uh, frequently and some soccer teams, actually, we have one of my colleagues, um, has the same device, but it's set up to be able to monitor heart rate of a team all Mm -hmm. at once. Mine only does one person at a time. Um, so they've done it with like an entire team of soccer players during practice or matches or whatever it is, it can do that. It's, it's the same kind of thing. So those are what I use during the live shows. I've got some ideas for other things that I want to do, but haven't gone down that road yet. But I also do research in my lab at the University of Windsor. So I bring drummers into the lab. I have a drum set in my lab 
Nice. Which is really cool. There's a drum set in the scientific research area. I hope, um, I hope that was a, uh, you, like you, you, you the business purchase, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I was able to buy that with some research funds that I had. So, um, yeah, so, but I, we've had lots of drummers come through the lab. We've done, we hook up all our other monitoring equipment to them at, you know, various times. We did one study where we were looking at motion of the upper limbs. So we had them instrumented with our 3D motion capture suit, Um to get that. And, uh, we had another study where they come in and we monitor the electrical activity coming from their muscles or certain muscles that we were interested in seeing what's going on there. Uh, another study where they came in and we monitored vibration exposure at the hands in response to hitting, you know, wood on metal and things like that. So I think those are the three, those are the main three that we've had people come in for. Um, but yeah, basically all the stuff that we would do with like athletes or workers or, you know, what have you, patients, um, you know, people with different injuries, we're doing that with drummers. <laughs> when you first start doing this, is the, is the research specific to uh, like calorie burning or an exercise more, more than it is about injury or was injury like right, uh, something you were studying immediately? It, it was something I was studying immediately. So my first project in that realm was an online survey because, again, not really having a whole lot of research on injuries and drummers, the first place to start is to determine how big of a problem is this or get some, so you can never fully determine, but get some sense of how big of an issue is this. So I did an online survey. I had almost, it was about 865 drummers who responded, 830 of which I could actually use the data. And reporting that's a good, in on, that's a good rate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not too bad. Yeah, they were, you know, I asked them questions about had they ever had a playing related injury that something that arose directly from playing the drums and specifically the musculoskeletal type. So the, the tendonitis and the carpal tunnel syndrome and like that kind of thing. Also asked them a ton of questions about, you know, had they ever taken formal lessons? Did their instructor teach them anything about injury prevention? What size is your drum kit? How many pieces? How often do you play? How long do you play for? Like all kinds of things like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so that I could start trying to look at, you know, what are maybe some things that are associated with higher or lower lower rates of reporting injuries. Um, so that's where it started because my my background in training and, and a lot of the research I'd done up to now was in occupational biomechanics and injury prevention. Um, so that was always something that was, you know, of interest to me. And so even from the get-go, uh, it really, those two projects kind of happened simultaneously. The the survey, I was designing that and I collected data on Mike a couple months before I launched the survey. So they were like kind of happening at the same time. Um, yeah. And then, so that survey, we were able to find, get some pretty great information from it. And it gave us the kind of roadmap for where to go with subsequent projects. So we, we found out that uh, you know, the drummers in our sample were reporting injuries at a really high rate. So like 68% of them had said they had experienced injury. 59% said they'd had more than one throughout their drumming career. So, and, and this is, and, is this a, what, when you say that, what is that one injury or just multi, or it could be one or multiple injuries? Well, that's what I asked them, you know, have you ever had a playing really so they're called PRMD for short, playing related musculoskeletal disorder. So I asked them, have you ever had a PRMD? Have you had one in the last 12 months? Have you had one, you know, in the last seven days, like that kind of thing. Um, and then I also asked them, you know, have you had more than one 
injury. And 59% of them said, yeah, I've had multiple injuries. Um, And so most of the injuries were to the upper limb, predictably, you know, the wrist, elbow, shoulder, the wrist was the one that stood out the most. So we were like, okay, this is, this is where we need to go first. We need to look at what's happening in the upper limb that might be leading to or associated with what we know about work-related injuries and the risk factors for those are those showing up in drummers. And so what we've found so far is, yeah, those, those things are showing up um, and they are related to the types of injuries that drummers are reporting. So I also asked them if they had received a medical diagnosis, uh, like from a medical professional, and if so, what was it? And the two most commonly re- reported ones were tendonitis and carpal tunnel syndrome. Yep. So we started looking for whether... Uh, the risk factors that we know of for those two issues show up in drumming and they certainly do. So that's where, you know, we looked at the motion capture to look at posture. Um, you know, there's a lot of extreme postures in the wrist, a lot of extension for a lot, like a large proportion of the playing time, which um, there is a link between that and the injuries that were being reported. Um, vibration exposure. We've been looking at that. We haven't published that yet, um, but the exposures are definitely at a level that um, we would expect to start seeing these kinds of injuries taking root. So can you, I'm sorry, explain that. What is vibration exposure exactly? Okay. So, uh, well, vibration is like the oscillatory motion of a body, right? So, um, and that can happen in response to touching an object that's vibrating or, um, through impact. So when you hit something, there's like a a shock wave that can travel up your arm. And when you do it repeatedly, it's like a form of vibration and the stick actually does vibrate, right? So how is that getting transmitted into your hand? So we use a device called an accelerometer to measure that. And then there's some, you know, math that you do to the data to find out where the exposure level is relative to these different standards that are applied in industrial hygiene. Um, And so if, you know, you get to these certain levels in an industrial setting, then you have to start doing things like, okay, do we have to remove this tool? Can we rearrange work hours or, or how long they're spending using it, you know, to, to reduce a person's exposure. Um, And we're, we've seen that drummers are, uh, the ones that we've had in our lab and we've monitored 12 now are at the levels that we would start to expect to see pot- the potential for problems gets much higher after that. Um, and it's a level that if if it was an industrial job, they, the company would have to do something. They would have to take action to um, uh, bring exposure levels into more acceptable levels. That's, that's super fascinating. And I, I wonder if, on the on the hand and the the arm wrist all of those those items you know that are more specific to these injuries does this include where maybe somebody has injured something and they're they've compensated which makes mm-hmm. it worse so for those lab studies mm-hmm. we only include people in our study who aren't don't have an active injury um <clears throat> we the our threshold is you have to have been playing at your normal intensity level and skill level, like basically to your normal for at least 30 days. That's kind of what we work for. Could they have, could they already have compensation from that? Absolutely. Um, but since we don't have data from them before they got injured, we, we can't 
necessarily tell if they do or don't. We definitely are trying to focus more on injuries that develop as a result of playing the drums, as opposed to, uh, you know, somebody who gets hurt and that, like, say, you know, slips and falls on an icy sidewalk and breaks their wrist or something. Obviously, that affects your drumming um, and may permanently, depending on the severity of the injury, but that's not that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at the stuff that happened because, you know, okay, I've been playing way more hours than I normally do. And now my wrists are pretty sore. Like those kinds of injuries are what we're focusing on. <laughs> I mean, it's wild just when you, you just this last thing you're talking about, because whenever I get ready for a, for like a recital that I'm about to give my mm-hmm. hours of practicing get upped. And I am always, I always have the pain reliever nearby knowing that like, I just need it for like, a, you know, a few weeks. Yeah. And then I, and then I don't, I don't take it again. Right. But, but I know like, cause I, at some point I had gone, I had, I went in to like get this, figure out what was going on. And it was basically, um, it was noticing part of it was noticing that I was gripping my steering wheel too tight mm. when I was driving and like not realizing that that was, that strain was, I was bringing that into my own practicing. Yeah. It's, that's definitely something we hear about a lot is with, with an increase in playing hours thing. Well, and that makes sense, right? You're increasing your exposure or your time doing some of the things that could lead to injury. And so the more exposure you have, the more likely you are that it becomes a problem. Um, but there are strategies that can help to reduce that risk, um, even during times when you are playing more because you're, you're preparing for a show. Um, you know, something as simple as making sure that you're taking regular breaks. Um, Performing Arts Medicine Association recommends taking 10-minute break every 30 minutes for every 30 minutes of playing. Uh, a lot of people don't do that, um, but that's, a, you know, an important thing to do. Or if you're going to be practicing a lot of hours in a day, trying to get long periods off the drums too. So, you know, practice for a couple hours, then take a good hour, two hour break and then get back to it and then take another really long break and try to give yourself that time off the kit for your tissues to start to repair themselves essentially. And even, even when you're, uh, when you're prepping for a show, it's just, it's essentially like training for athletes, right? Like an athlete trains in order to perform during a game. Um, drummers train in order to perform on tour or at their show or whatever it's going to be. Um, but even elite athletes who are undergoing intensive training regimens during the season, their trainers will build in downtime for them because sports science knows that recovery is critical for performance. Elite athletes will have one day a week where they're, they might be exercising, but it's not a full tilt training session. They're, they're doing some yoga. They're going for a light jog. They're doing something to be active, but like not intensive training. And then they'll also build in like a day of not doing that sport, you know? So they go golfing (laughs) instead, or, you know, they, they don't do their particular sport so that again, they're getting time to let those tissues recover um, so that they can make sure that they're not overtraining and affecting their performance because of that. So same thing applies to drums. <laughs> you don't want to overtrain. So you do have to build in those, those downtimes, um, yeah. which I know can be hard psychologically because you think I need to practice. I need to practice. Um, 
but as much as you can, you know, if you can think of it as this is my insurance, you know, I'm doing what I can to make sure I can perform when it's time. Um, then hopefully that helps make it a little easier. Relatedly, have you seen anything from your studies that have talked at all about drum sets that are the practice style or the, you know, that don't, that, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like the, the rubber, like basically the pads, the electronic yeah, yeah. type. Yeah, if there's any difference between if, if <clears throat> play, if that's help or, or hindered anything related to your research. Yeah. You know, nothing, we haven't studied that specifically yet. That is something that I would like to do because I've heard anecdotally that practice pads and the rubber style drums, electronic drums can be really hard to play on and to like for long periods. I also know drummers who take them on tour and use them to warm up on. So I don't really have much to say either way about that. Um, but I would like to study that because I, I have heard from people, you know, that, that those are an issue. Um, so that would be interesting. But I think if there is an issue, I would suspect that it's because of the nature of the surface that you're hitting. Um, you know, believe it or not, metal symbols have give when you hit them. If you ever watched, there's actually, it was Mike Mangini again, was on an episode of, it was like a sciencey show. And they took high-speed video of him. And this is on YouTube. You can find this on there. Yeah. They took high-speed video of him hitting a drum and, or, or I'm sorry, a cymbal. And the, the bend that that symbol, like even Mike was like, when he saw the video, he was like, I had no idea that they did that. They deform way more than you think a metal object would. Um, whereas the rubber practice pad, you think rubber, oh, like, you know, rebound, that kind of thing. But they're, they actually tend to be a harder surface and they don't have as much give. And so that might be where some of the problems are coming from for some people. Yeah, I, I haven't studied it specifically yet, but I would I would like to at some point. Uh, what you found out about um, studying and through the research you've done, what is the most common lower? You talked about that most of the injuries are upper limb or arm, wrist, shoulder, that kind of stuff. What what, yeah. what about the rest of the body? What's the most common injury there? Uh, second to the wrist was the low back. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that is also a direction that I want to go in at some point. I chose to start and focus on the upper limb because when it, when you combined the wrist, elbow, and shoulder injuries, yeah. it was 59% of the people had a shoulder or a wrist or like an upper limb injury yeah. compared to if you just look at the back, so upper, mid, and lower combined, I think that was somewhere around... 33%, which is still significant, but I was like, 60% or 30%, you yeah. know? So we had to put our eggs in a basket and that's what we chose. Um, but I definitely could see how, you know, playing the drums could be tough on the lumbar spine, especially if you don't have uh, the core strength. If, if your core needs some work, you know, that could certainly be a problem, but also from things like uh, carrying the gear around. Like if you have to move your drum set a lot and set up and tear down and, you know, you're doing it in these tiny little venues where there's no space or around, like, you know, you're, you're one of three drummers playing that night. And you're trying to set up around everyone else's gear and there's no room you get into like, that's heavy stuff. It's awkward loads. You're yeah. moving it a lot. Um, you're, you're getting in awkward positions, trying to set it up. And that puts a lot of stress 
on the low back. And so I suspect that a lot of the low back injuries came, you know, from the, the lugging of gear <laughs> more so than the playing itself, but certainly the playing could be an issue too. If your throne is too high or too low or you're too far away, or, you know, again, the core strength, you're reaching too far. If your stuff is set up too far away from you, um, that, you know, all of those things could contribute to something like that too. Have you, uh, in your research found anything about the nature of the throne itself? Drum set players should be in a better position in terms of the, the actual throne. And I, I feel like I've, I've sat on so many that have been just so not good enough. There's just not enough support. And I, I, what, what have yeah. you figured out from that, from your research on that? Again, we haven't gone there yet. Um, I have so many things that I want to do, but I'm I'm one person and I only take a few students at a time um, because going back to the whole teaching aspect, I like to be hands-on. This is my research too, right? So yeah. I like to be in it and I can't do that if I have 15 students. Um, so we're a small group and uh, we haven't been able to do all the things that I want to do yet. I definitely think there's uh, some some potential avenues of study with drum thrones, the shape of the seat, the material, backrest or no backrest, you Mm -hmm. know, all that kind of stuff. You know, people ask me about that all the time, but I think if I had one major thing to say about drum thrones in general, it's just make sure it's solid. Mm -hmm. Make sure it's not wobbly so that you're not fighting against that motion the whole time you're trying to play. Um, Because that could lead to some excess muscle, muscle tension, which then leads to fatiguing, can lead to injury, muscle soreness, all that kind of stuff. Well, that's, that's good to know. I'm glad that it's like, you're just like, no, no soon. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. As soon as we can. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In the, in the time that you've done that you've done, cause you said this is just, this is still what, three, four years. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty recent, right? All of this research. Yeah. We, I started developing the survey in like the summer of 2017 so it's been about six years. Yeah. What have been the, in that short amount of time, what have been the um, technological upgrades that have happened that make your research better? You can get more data points, all that stuff. That's a good question. So there's one device that I would love to get my hands on. Uh, and when I get some research funding that has a budget for equipment, it will be high on my list. Uh, there's a device called Hexoskin, which is developed by a con- uh, company out of Montreal. And it essentially is like, uh, it's their wearables, but it's like a shirt that you wear and mm-hmm. it collects all kinds of stuff. Like, I think it gets like blood pressure and respiration rate and heart rate, and but not just beats per minute, but like the EKG mm-hmm. and all the things. Whereas what I have is just the beats per minute. Sure. Um, so, and I could, I mean, I don't know that a drummer would want to wear a blood pressure cuff <laughs> while sure. they are playing so that I could monitor that. So yeah, I would love to get my hands on one of those. Um, but other than that, you know, the, the things that we've been, we've been using, um, you know, my motion capture system is fairly new. Uh, I use the, well, it's, it's Movella now, but it was called Xsense, um, the MVN Winda, And it's uh, basically it's really great because it's portable. So the motion capture stuff that we have in the lab has to stay in the lab because it needs very pristine conditions because you're relying on cameras 
picking up reflections from lights and things like that, um, which is really hard to do if you're out in the field and that sort of thing. Um, and you need a direct line of sight to the person. So that does not work for drummers. You know, if I tried to use that on a drummer, I wouldn't see half of the reflective markers. There'd be all kinds of noise in, in the data because the cameras would pick up the reflections from the cymbals and the metal on the drums and all that stuff. So we use this XN system because they have uh, their inertial measurement units. So it's uh, an accelerometer, a gyroscope, and a magnetometer, all within this little like one by two inch rectangle that get placed on the body at specific locations. And that's how you get the, the position and movement. So I don't need a direct line of sight to the drummer because the motion units are picking everything up that I need. Uh, I don't have to worry about, there's other noise that you have to deal with in the data or could potentially, but I don't have to worry about, you know, having to clean up a bunch of video data or marker data because of it's picking up erroneous stuff. So that's why uh, we use that one. But again, that's a pretty new system and there's still a lot you know, in development with it. But that system is really cool because it's used by animators too. Mm. So the the movie Ted with the bear. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ted, the motion capture for Ted was done with this system. So it's it's really neat because it can be used in so many different ways. But yeah, so I think that's, the, the biggest one would be getting that hexoscan. I think everything else that I use is fairly industry standard for what what we do. I'd say that's that's the biggest one. I gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about uh, mm -hmm. a little bit more about Windsor itself. Like, I, I don't know, okay. like, where is I know you're in Ontario, <clears throat> but I don't know, like, yep. just like and and kind of I guess what a typical your typical student body is in terms of where they come from and mm. you know who comes to your school typically. Windsor is in Ontario. We are right across the border from Detroit, Michigan. So uh, that gives you a sense of where we are, Southwestern Ontario. Um, we are the southernmost university in Canada. <laughs> so um, You're the tropical to, location is what you're saying. We, yeah, we are the tropical part of Canada, um, but which is not saying, oh, it's hot in the summer, but it is yeah. not hot year round by yeah. any stretch, I wish. Um, <laughs> so our student body, um, we do have a pretty diverse student body. We do get a lot of international students um, who come over. We also have a lot of students from our local area. So the next nearest university to us in Ontario is in London, which is two hours up the road. So we have a lot of local students who, you know, stick around and come to our campus. International, I'm not really sure on the numbers in terms of American students coming. I know we get some, but I don't know. Uh, I think a lot more people from Windsor go to school in Detroit. Like I went to Wayne State University in Detroit for my PhD. Yeah. A lot of people go across. I'm not sure what the number is coming back the other way. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we get we get a lot of students from India, from China. I think India and China are the two biggest ones, but I'm not in the, the recruitment or, or that sort of end of things. So I don't really know but i know in kines like our kinesiology our own student body has um really diversified a lot over the last several years um so we have students from many different walks uh in our in our building which is really great i mean how close to detroit are you uh like we're connected by a bridge and a tunnel like i can see it from the shore <laughs> 
Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's very close. I don't know how to describe that. It's dangerous to swim across, but you probably could, like distance-wise. It's like maybe maybe three to five kilometers. Okay. That. Probably less than that. Yeah, probably way less than that. I don't know. But yeah, definitely, definitely close. Like there's a marathon that that is put on every fall. Uh-huh. It's uh, that um, you start in Detroit, you run across the Ambassador Bridge into Windsor from there to the tunnel crossing and back under the tunnel back to Detroit to finish the loop from there. Ah. So if that gives you a sense of how close, I guess probably a lot like the Hudson River, like New York and New Jersey. Oh, sure. Yeah. It, it's probably very similar to that. Yeah. Well, I grew up in New York, but I know that like, if you mm-hmm. go, uh, that like Jersey city, Hoboken, you, you would not know you would barely know that you were not still not in New York city. If you're in these cities, because they're they're that close. And it's just like, there's a lot. No, I mean, for us, I would not say that because you're you're like, you're crossing an international border. It's it's very clear that you're in one or the other, uh, you know, (laughs) but yeah, still, still very close proximity. A lot of people um, in Windsor go to school over there, work over there. Um, we spend a lot of time over there doing leisure stuff because Detroit has all the major sports teams and it's a stop on most concert tours. Yeah. Um, so we're always over there doing something or another. And a lot of people come over to Windsor too, because especially right now, you know, the dollars, I think Americans get 40 cents on the dollar. So you come over here and have dinner and go to our casino and shop and do all those things. And yeah. Good. That sounds great. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) It's pretty great. Well, I, I want to backtrack. So you said that when you were, you were growing, where did you grow up? First of all, let's start there. I grew up here, uh, not in Windsor, like on the outskirts of Windsor. Okay. But you were saying that you, you were in on the music side that like you were, you had been actively involved in music in some form, right? Mm-hmm. What was, yeah. what, what, what was some of that? Uh, yeah. So I took piano lessons for nine or 10 years. I went through the Royal Conservatory of Music, um, went up to grade eight in piano. And then I also took three years of flute lessons in elementary school as part of our school music program, dabbled with other instruments. My friends and I who were in the music program, we used to like trade instruments over the weekend. So I'd bring home my friend's clarinet and she'd take home my flute so we could mess around that way. Um, I also, so um, I did learn how to play the drums when I was a teenager, um, but then didn't really do much with it um, until I met my husband because he and his brother are both drummers. Oh, okay. Uh, So yeah, I I have a drum set in my basement. um, And I have taken a few lessons. Uh, so, you know, kind of messed around with that a little bit. Um, but yeah, the, the, the more extensive training was the, the piano. Um, that was the longest one. Explain the, the Royal College. Is that just a, a set of books or is there like, a, like gold pieces? How, how does that work? Yeah, it's a, so, so I don't actually know if it's a physical building somewhere it may be but yeah the royal conservatory of music um is essentially so they put out a set of uh they have lots of books uh like different classical pieces um that uh, it's all leveled so you know grade one to grade eight 
And then they do have grade nine and 10 as well. But grade eight is where you have to go if you want to be a music teacher. So you have to pass and they do exams. And so you have to pass the grade eight practical exam. There's also a theory exam. So I went up to level two in theory and up to grade eight uh, in piano. Although I will, I will say that I did not pass my grade eight exam. I missed it by four marks. Um, But at that point I was a teenager and I had had it with lessons and (laughs) I was like, I'm done. Yeah. He said, do the exam, not pass the exam, mom and dad. So, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I wasn't into that. I didn't, I didn't want to do that kind of stuff. You know, my teacher was great because we didn't only focus on the classical pieces. There were several that I really enjoyed playing, but I was much more into playing popular music, especially uh, musicals, show tunes, Disney, um, oh, okay. you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I was much more interested in doing those. And she indulged that <laughs> while she was also making sure that I was getting through uh, as far as I could. So, so you may somewhere have the, uh, the, the Grease songbook somewhere around. I don't have Grease, but I had like Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, I sure. Could, you know, I'm the fan of the opera. I play Les Mis. I could play almost the whole thing. Uh, uh-huh. You know, I learned so many of those songs. Um, what else? Yeah, a lot of a like lot of Disney Miss Saigon or Jesus no, Christ Superstar. Uh, I didn't actually learn any of the songs from Jesus Christ Superstar, but that was definitely in the book. I think like some from Evita. Oh yeah. Um, my favorite one to play was "Tell Me on a Sunday," um, and I can't remember what musical that was from because it wasn't one I had seen. It was just it, oh. I had it on like an Andrew Lloyd Webber Greatest Hits oh, CD, okay. and I loved it, and I learned to play it, and I, I loved playing it because it was really complicated mm-hmm. but I, I was able to do it and I yeah. always remember feeling like I'm so good at this like when I would be playing because uh-huh. it just felt like once I got it down I was like wow I can't believe I learned that it was just a really like nice lilting ballad too but there's a lot of like arpeggio type stuff in there and it uh yeah I loved it yeah do you play you play cats I did play cats yes I yeah. did play some cats too yeah yeah, yeah absolutely Mr. Mustafa yeah the good one. Uh, uh, yeah, memory. Oh, well, of course. Um, yeah. 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 So. Yeah. That's good. And do you yeah. do any um, Stephen Sondheim? I don't think so. Okay. Sunday in the park. Unless my teacher made me and I don't remember. Oh, sure. Um, that's, that's not ringing a bell. <laughs> okay. Because it's interesting because that's all like the, I don't want to say the new generation, but it's like, that was definitely a change when Andrew Lloyd Webber and like that generation comes up. Cause it's not the, like the fiddler on the roof music, like that uh, generation. Yeah. It's it like the, whole ones new... the rock inspired ones. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, especially in the Disney stuff too. Like when sure. they started with the musicals, right? Like a uh, little mermaid and mm-hmm. Aladdin and the lion King and, you know, those are always a lot of fun. Um, yeah. to learn and play. Yeah. Do you have a favorite of the Disney ones? I always liked playing um, A Whole New World mm. by Aladdin. What's the name of the one from The Lion King? Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Sure, yeah. It was one of my favorites. All the ballads. You were a big... The All ballads. the ballads, yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> my, my romantic teenage soul. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> loved, the, loved the love ballads. I also grew up, grew up in the era of like rock ballads, like power ballads. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of that. <laughs> Oh, okay. Repertoire too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So can't fight this feeling. Of course. <laughs> That's Mario yes. Speedwagon. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff. 
So yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah, like uh, "High Enough" by Damn Yankees. You know yeah, I never, I never did that one. Okay, but stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. Oh, they're so much fun. They're, I mean, <laughs> yeah, great, like literally legit, really good songs. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. like, oh, Sister Christian. Oh, I love that song. I didn't yeah. learn how to play it, but that is such a good song. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely, like, if you go to Apple Music and are like, put on, like, 80s metal, metal essentials kind of thing, that's, <laughs> yeah. like, that's not his playlist. Oh, <laughs> uh, I got you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that stuff. Um, oh, When I'm With You by Sheriff, that was one of my favorites. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. How we about uh, who used to play all that stuff? Mm-hmm. So home, home sweet home. That's a good one too. Yeah. I don't think I ever played that one though. Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't know what you got till it's gone, Cinderella. It's a good one. Yeah. Uh Air Supply, making love out of nothing at all. Oh, of that course. Another favorite. Yeah. yeah. That, was, that was a big one. A lot of like again, a lot of big chords, yes. a lot of effort. <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. <laughs> this is awesome. We I, I had <laughs> I wasn't, I, I was a big fan of the ballads, but I had the, um, the books I would, I would play out of, I had like a Billy Joel and Elton John book that I played out mm-hmm. of all the time. So Billy it was Joel's like, Lullaby? yes. Yeah. That yeah. one, um, honesty, she's got a way like these are ones that, oh, yeah. 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 Just such good stuff. Yeah. I, I'm sure I've got them in my office somewhere. I could, I could pull them out and we could just like, just look at them. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I haven't played in so long that I'm, I'm super rusty and I wish I could just put aside the time to get back to it because mm-hmm. uh, with the movie, The Greatest Showman, Oh. if I could learn I, that soundtrack, I get chills every time I see that movie. I listen mm-hmm. to it. I just love it. And I wish I could play. I have like an easy piano version of it because like that's how far <laughs> I prefer it <laughs> sure. at this point. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I would love to get back into playing to be able to to get back to where I was to be able to play the the full versions of those songs. Just awesome. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, next time, maybe next time I see you at Pasek, uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll find a piano and see if you can play roll with the changes. Uh, <laughs> oh well you're gonna i'm gonna have to have some practice time ahead of time because i am yeah it's i'm i'm so rusty I'm, I'm hoping it's not well i know it's not beyond salvation but it's, it's gonna take some serious effort oh yeah <laughs> like some serious work yeah, yeah to get back yeah you, but the thing is like you get the one you you, you get the one back and you're like let's do it yeah <laughs> yeah it's all still in there I yep, just got to, yeah, I got to put in the time to make it happen. So no, that, that's, that's awesome. Maybe one day, uh, <laughs> you know, the, this, this music background, uh, I'm going to, we're going to backtrack a sec, but, but do you find other people in your field that have, are, do people come to your field and they have like some of these, this background, like, are there people in your discipline who you could talk music to, or are they like, is it like not even. Oh um, Yeah. Okay. Oh no. Um, I haven't talked to too many students about it. Um, just, it hasn't really come up, but like my, my current grad student, Jessica is a highly accomplished musician, Mm. um, multi-instrumentalist, uh, just outstanding. And so that's really cool because, you know, she's, she's in that world. You know, most of the students that come through are music fans at the very least. So they have an appreciation for it. Um, but it does help when, you know, students have, even if they haven't played the drums, 
that they have some music background. I don't require it of my students who come in to work with me in grad school, but it really helps them to not have to learn musical terminology and, you know, things like that and, and have an appreciation for the feel of an instrument and what it's like to play one. But yeah, I'm trying to think if any of my colleagues, I'm sure at least a handful of them have some, actually, I know for sure two of them play the guitar. I think one of them also plays the piano. So yeah, they're, they're there. And, and I may just not, there might be more. I just don't know. You know, it's, I've talked to other people who have, who have had, who, who go into a field that's not um, like maybe music performance or even music teaching, but they've, mm-hmm. they can apply what they've learned on the music side to that field, whether it's just mm-hmm. like a discipline, like the discipline of having to, to learn the ways that percussion, percussionists or musicians have to. Um, yeah. The fact that, like you're saying, you know, if you have a grad student who's already really interested in music, you know that they at least have the passion for that side and, mm-hmm. and you can, you can do, you could take care of the, of the nuts and bolts of the science side. Yeah. Knowing that they have the, like they have that already built in, I would assume. Yeah, it, it definitely helps. And certainly, uh, but it also, I've found over the years too, that it also helps for students who have any kind of training background not necessarily maybe they don't have like the highest grades solid grades because you have to to go to grad school but they may not be like the a plus students but their work ethic is second to none because they're used to training and they're used to you know they they can take constructive criticism because they're used to a coach giving them feedback constantly right good bad and ugly right so they they get that having any kind of discipline like that, whether it's, uh, you know, robotics club, like competitive robotics to Mm -hmm. music training, to a sport, um, you know, having that sort of discipline instilled in you really translates well to, especially in an environment like a grad school or even undergrad, like the research setting, because you, a lot of it is very independent work. There's a lot of feedback. There's also a lot of there's also a lot of like, there's always people reviewing what you're doing and judging it, right? Yeah. You're presenting it. You're, I'm sure it's the same in music, right? Oh, yeah. So having that and having the ability to handle failure mm. repeatedly yeah. <laughs> because, you know, equipment doesn't work. Something you thought was going to work does not work at all. How am I going to fix this? What can we do instead? Um, you know, having the resilience to be able to handle that you know, a lot of that, I've, I've noticed that a lot of my students who have had these other disciplines in their life tend to take to that really well. And it's not to say that others don't, but it, I just, I've noticed it. I've noticed the pattern where it maybe doesn't take them as long to settle into that as other students, um, because they're just kind of used to that, that environment already. When you were kind of going up through your degrees, and I'm looking, I'm, I'm back on your website and you have what looks like multiple, do you have two masters? Is that what, what I see? Yeah. Um, it was, and that was just through the, so I did my undergrad and masters, like research-based masters mm-hmm. at the university of Windsor. And then when I went to Wayne state, just through the, that was a course-based masters. So I had taken enough courses 
leading up to my PhD to get a second master's degree, which would have been more like a, a terminal. Like if that was the only master's I had, I would not have been able to go on and do a PhD most likely because it was not research-based in any way. It was more of the professional degree at that point. So um, yeah, so that was in biomedical engineering. And then my PhD was also in that same field. When you were going through um, undergrad and to grad, how did you figure out what, that this was the field? I mean, you, you had mentioned that you had, you had done some other things, like when you, like you, you worked in some places where you're like, that's not what I want to do. That's not mm-hmm. what I want to do. But was there something where you were like, okay, now I know, like, I see the path forward for myself. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next question. Not really. <laughs> um, no, I, so let me qualify. Um, yeah. I, I knew, I knew I was in the right discipline, um, mm-hmm. in the right sort of general area, injury prevention, um, that sort of thing. I knew I wanted to do something that could help people move better, live better, whatever. It wasn't going to be for a while. I flirted with med school and was like, no, that's not, that's not where I want to go. Um, I mentioned about the physio, um, although that would help me a lot these days to be able to consult with drummers. Um, I didn't, I just, from that experience, I knew that's not what I wanted. I had thought originally when I went to do my master's, I had thought originally that maybe I would get a job in ergonomics, but more on the planning and development or even like product design side. Uh, I have a lot of friends who work in the big three over in the United States doing uh, ergonomics on they're like helping to design assembly lines that are three, four years out, but dealing with, you know, modeling and simulation of like, are there going to be potential, are there potential ergonomic issues with what the industrial engineers have designed? Um, Wait, which, and you mean, that, and just, and just to be, you mean on the automotive, on the automotive industry? Yes. That big yeah, three, that's, that, that's, that's the big the, industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Big three Ford Chrysler GM. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Motor City. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so that's kind of where I thought originally I was going to go. And then decided that I, I wanted to do a more of a research-based master's degree. So still in like the biomechanics ergonomics field. And then when I finished that, I was just sort of like, well, I don't have a job. I remember I, I, defended, my, I defended my thesis in December. And then we had Christmas break. And like the Monday after, you know, my husband, go, I was already married at that point. My husband goes to work and I'm sitting at home on my couch going, what am I, <laughs> I don't have a job. Yeah. What am I going to do? I immediately yeah. start looking for PhD programs. Um, so, and then I found Wayne State and the bioengineering program really intrigued me because it was, I always thought I might've done well in engineering, but the applications that I knew of for engineering, I knew weren't going to be for me. Hmm. Um, so I stumbled on this biomedical engineering and I thought, this is amazing. This is like, you know, again, injury prevention, but in a whole different way. So we were looking at, um, like the school I went to in the program particularly is renowned for, um, having developed a lot of the federal motor vehicle safety standards that hmm. are in place for automotive safety. A lot of them were done at Wayne state university, Mm-hmm. Um, so like that end of it, like preventing automotive injuries. And that was really intriguing. Um, so that's what I did for my PhD. And at that point, not knowing, you know, where I was going to end up or, or what I was going to do. Um, and then the job at the university of Windsor came, uh, came up, I applied for it, ended up getting it. So was able to stay in my hometown and, you know, do that. 
Awesome. I mean, it, it's it's <laughs> fascinating because it it doesn't seem like if I if I have this right, you've kind of been there the whole time, right? I have. Yeah. I I really haven't left <laughs> Windsor and Detroit much, um, but you know what? I love it here. I, yeah. I you know my family's here. My husband's family's here. Hmm. My friends are here. I had an opportunity for a great job here. And my husband's business is here. Like it just kind of fit. I mean, we would have left if we had to, but you know, we're glad that we didn't have to again, being close to the border. Like I've been able to collaborate with people at Wayne state, um, Mm -hmm. you know, on, on some projects. And I have friends that I went to Wayne state with who are now at like university of Michigan or other places nearby. So, you know, they're still in the area as well, which is really cool. Um, yeah. So it just kind of worked out that way. No, that's, that's amazing. Is it weird being teaching at where you did undergrad and masters? Is it weird? Like, did you have to, were there, did you have faculty who you're like, they're like, no, no, call me, you know, call me Barbara. And you're like, but you're doctor or whatever. Like I, I can't do that. hundred percent. It was super weird at first. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was really weird. Like my, at the time, Uh, that I was hired, the dean of the faculty was someone who had taught me in undergrad and I I knew him, but it was, it was Dr. Boucher. Yeah. yeah. I, I was always raised that you don't call adults (laughs) by their first name until they tell you that it's okay. Yeah. So he never did for like, I think I called him Dr. Boucher for like the first two or three years that I worked there. Uh Yeah. (laughs) Until I finally one day I'm like, this is ridiculous. Everyone else calls him Bob. You have to as well. Um, So yeah, and you like, did that all. And you're like Bob. You like you know like hide like yeah. And I was like, please don't get mad at me. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I pulled that with. Uh, so my department head at the time, same thing. I had he had taught me. I was his teaching assistant a few times when I was in grad school, and I think it was like one of my first days on the job, and I referred to him as Doctor Marino. He's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> He's like, it's Wayne. That's that's that. So. So my, my master's supervisor, we share a lab. So like, he's still, um, you know, working and in, in, in my department and, you know, that was really interesting because on the one hand, you want to collaborate because you, you've worked together before. On the other hand, as a young investigator, you can't because you have to establish independence and, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, so you have to be careful that you're not collaborating all the time with people you collaborated with in grad school. Um, you know, so that was a bit of a challenge, but yeah, even just, just sort of being now on like the other side of the table, right? Like people who used to be your, your professors and your examiners are now like you're eating lunch with them in the lunchroom kind of thing. Um, yeah, but it, uh, it got over that fairly quickly. Um, so yeah, but it it was funny at first. Definitely. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Um, yeah. Yeah, you, you make a good point though about uh particularly about the um you know the establishing yourself. Um mm. you know, one thing I don't know, I'm curious about this, and I don't know how how this works necessarily in your field, but for sure, um there's sometimes there are schools where if you like if if in your case, you know, you're teaching at where you did your undergrad, it would be very mm. common for someone to um to go to another to teach in another school for a while. Mm-hmm. and kind of establish that they can, you know, hold the job. And then yeah. maybe after that, if there's an opening, they can come back. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, 
as far as does that something that's does that common for your in your field as well or not necessarily yes and no um i think they're there i think it might be changing we like in my department we have a lot of people in our department who have a connection to windsor in some way shape or form whether it's our department or even another one on campus and not necessarily just at my institution but in academia there used to be this prevailing notion of like well, you can't do your bachelor's, master's, and PhD all at the same institution. And I think that's changing for a lot of reasons. And that's, I mean, when you think about it, that's a really sort of elitist view on yeah. things, right? Like not everybody can afford to move to LA to go to whatever school there. Yeah. Um, you know, people with children might need to stay where they're at so that they have family support so that they can go get their PhD to have the attitude of like, well, you only ever trained at one institution. So maybe they were the ones that were doing what I wanted to do. <laughs> why yeah. would I want to, why would I go somewhere else for the sake of going somewhere else when what I want to do is right here? I don't know per se that that's like something that's been factored into our hirings or anything like that. I don't think, but I know there are people in our discipline who, who have that, that view. Obviously I don't. <laughs> so. I got you. I don't know if you can kind of extrapolate this to, to Canada versus the United States, but mm. um, is your specific uh, area, is that a common degree program in Canada? Or are you one of the few schools that, that does that specific area? Are you talking about kinesiology? Yes. Oh, no, it's very common. Okay. Like most universities have a kinesiology program. Not all of them will have bachelor's master's and phd sure. um some might only have a bachelor's program mm -hmm. um but i yeah like most of the institutions i can think of have it mm -hmm. yeah i gotcha but if they yeah. let's say they want to if they want to get a phd mm -hmm. is that i assume that would now <clears throat> we're only talking about a few places probably right mm, no i mean us western waterloo U of T. There's a lot of them. Okay. There's a lot of places you could go. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then more and more lately, like we, our PhD program is less than 10 years old. Mm. Uh, we had a master's program. Um, but I actually, so speaking of not like having to go somewhere, yeah. I had to, had Windsor had a PhD program, I may have stayed. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I didn't have that choice. I had to go somewhere else. And luckily Detroit was again, like they had the program that interested me. Um, so I, luckily I was able to stay here and, you know, that sort of thing, but go to a different school in a different country, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. still live in my hometown. Um, so yeah, they, they've been more and more schools are, are developing PhD programs. Mm -hmm. So it is getting more accessible. Kinesiology is definitely common. Yeah. PhDs in kinesiology, fairly common. Okay. I would, I would think most of the major schools have them. Yeah. Got it. What was your, if you, what was your, uh, PhD this or however, whatever it's referred to. Oh, the dissertation. Yeah. Yeah. The topic? I, <laughs> the topic was, so in a nutshell, I was looking to see, uh, we were looking for, a. an, to be able to define a potential mechanism for why people feel pain after whiplash, like a 
So when you're in a car crash, whiplash actually happens primarily when you're hit from behind because of the way your body moves during the collision. And so the problem though, is that it's the injury. It's not a bony injury, so it doesn't show up on x-rays. Um, and it's a very subtle injury. So you really can't see it even on MRI, but people are clearly in pain and for long periods sometimes. So my advisor's lab, uh, was looking at, there's like certain ligaments in the spine that they determined were the ones or they and others determined that those, that's probably where whiplash injury is coming from is issues with these ligaments. So he was, his previous work had looked at like, if we basically, if we stretch this ligament this way. Can we see if there are certain nerves that are firing that might lead to the sensation of pain? My project was to look at what does that do to the muscles? If we stretch that ligament, does do certain muscles fire? And it, and do they continue to fire after you stretch it to the point where it might actually have been damaged? Um, so that's basically what what my thesis was or my dissertation was is is looking at the muscle response in the neck muscle response to stretching that particular ligament. How, how long does it take to, or did it take for you to, to kind of finish that all out? So I started doing pilot work for it like within my first 18 months because the student before me was using the same model to mm-hmm. do her test that I was going to be using for mine. So I would piggyback some stuff onto what she was doing. So from like that point through defending yeah three and a half years three three and a half years i was there for a total of four and a half years okay and and you were done at the end of that four and a half years yes okay yeah 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 like from from start day first day on campus to dr nadia (laughs) was about Uh four and a half years yeah yeah. Is that is that typical? Like when someone starts a PhD program in your field, is it like it's going to take four or so or four to five or or longer? Yeah. I would assume. I mean, I know science. I know particularly with um, certain types of uh, bi- I think biological lab work and maybe mm-hmm. physics. Like there's just sometimes it just takes a long time to even just get the data or to get all the funding. And like, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It uh, so. I would say that four and a half years is like on target for what you'd want it to take getting one done in four years. So our program is listed as like four years. Yeah. Yeah. Usually it's between four and five. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, at this point, like these are adults, yeah. right? Like right. they're getting married, they're having babies, they're doing life. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't always take only four years. Right. Um, but it can also, like on, on the other flip side, it can also take longer, not because of those things, just because of the, the nature of the work. Um, so I, like, I know people who it took them probably six-ish years, yeah. some maybe more. Um, but yeah, I'd say somewhere between like four to six years is probably like what you're looking at, especially with, you know, life intervening. Sure. Um, yeah when when you finish your kind of uh phd is there a an expectation maybe you would uh people do postdocs and do other or do like research position specific or do a lot of them end up going into a teaching position so nowadays it's actually very difficult to get uh an academic position like a, a professorship um 
there at the time that I went, I actually hadn't planned on doing my PhD that early. Um, but one of my thesis committee members encouraged me to, because as he put it, there was a lot of gray hair in the academy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he said, we're going to have a huge turnover and there's going to be lots of positions available. And he thought I would be particularly well suited to it. So I was like, well, okay, maybe, you know, nowadays it, it's much more difficult. Um, there are not very many uh, positions available and there are a lot of PhDs out there. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> a lot of students do go on and do a postdoc. I think my, like my generation was probably the last that didn't really have to, like I was hired by Windsor before I finished my PhD. Yeah. And that never, that does not happen anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I have colleagues who have like two or three postdocs before they got their position. Um, Is it required? No. Um, I think it depends on, you know, what you want to do with your PhD. Um, There are certainly, there are lots of industry settings where you can do a ton of research and mentoring and all that kind of stuff without it being a postdoc, yeah. um, without it being in a university setting. So you can go and do that. If you, for some reason, are really, you know, driven by the university setting or your, your advisor is working on something that you're like, we have unfinished business, I want to continue this project, you might stick around. Um, but it's it's certainly not, it's not required, but a lot of people are doing it because they can stay in a university setting. They might be able to teach a sessional course here and there mm-hmm. um, to still get that aspect up and running. So it, you know, it does have an attraction for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but there are definitely other ways to apply a PhD um, in industry. In your case, when you were uh, when you were able to get hired, and you, as you said, you were still you were you were not done. I assume mm-hmm. your ABD or whatever they call it. Yeah. Yes, that. What what goes into a typical interview for you know like like I, like it's one of those like I have a very clear concept of what a musician has to do for these things mm-hmm. could not tell you the the first thing about what I I mean it's like research talk teaching talk is it is it is there other elements both. <laughs> typically both um, yeah, yeah, so sure. it probably looks a little different at every institution, but what I've been on a hiring committee for ours. So I can tell you what ours looks like. Um, there is, they have to give a talk about their research and not just what they've done, but what are you going to do here? Um, what's your plan for this is what we want to see. Um, then there's usually a teaching talk as well. Um, we usually have them, you know, if we're hiring someone for, you know, an ergonomics position, we might say, you know, design devise a class for like a first year ergonomics group Mm, and pretend that's who you're teaching to. Mm -hmm. Um, so we usually have them do that. Then there's, there's an actual interview with the committee. Um, there's usually a lunch, you know, we go for lunch with the committee and then they'll meet with the department head and the Dean. So the department head, they'll get a sense of like how their teaching load might be and all that kind of stuff with the Dean. They're talking about things like, do I have any startup funding for research and where's my lab space going to be? who buys me a computer for my office, like, you know, things, practical stuff uh, like that. And uh, I know for mine, when I interviewed, I I did, actually, I didn't have to do a teaching talk, but I did do a research talk. I met with students. I like actually was interviewed by a group of students and that factored into, um, you know, the hire. Uh, But I also met with, I think the provost, 
and one other like university higher admin person. I'm not sure if they do that anymore, um, but they used to anyway. Um, so yeah, it, you know, it, I think it, it varies by institution, but that's generally what it looks like. In your field, when you, when someone's giving a, some type of teaching talk or mm-hmm. research talk, like what's on your, if you're, you, you said you you've been on the committee side. So like, mm-hmm. what's, what are you looking for? But like, what, what, what is it just like someone can, can like adequately <laughs> explain what they do in ways that don't alienate the entire audience? Like what's. So there's, there's obviously like a job ad, right? So we're, oh, yeah. we're usually looking for someone with a specific, within a specific domain. I was on a committee where we were looking for somebody for this particular sub-discipline of ergonomics yeah. or uh, not even sub, but just like branch mm-hmm. that uh, we wanted more of in our departments. We were looking for someone who uh, was schooled in that and or had worked in that area, preferably had taught in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and then looking at things like, yeah, what what is their research going to be? Could we see that? working here with what we, you know, if somebody comes in, they're like, I do a ton of tissue work with wet lab this, I need thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment. We're like, we don't have that here. Um, you know, so it's like, it, it depends, um, you know, what they want to do also looking for someone, you know, when, when we're watching the, the teaching talk, like, are they engaging? Are they, is this someone that the students are going to want to listen to for three hours a week? Or is this going to be rough go, you know? Um, and especially in our department, we place a high value on teaching. Um, we really strive to hire and to be great teachers. Yeah. So we're looking for people that we think are going to be great teachers. And if they've taught before and can show us, you know, teaching evaluations and positive student reviews and all things like that, uh, you know, that's, that factors in heavily. Are they going to be able to do the research that they're proposing to do? Uh, you know, can they do it independently? Um, do they have a good plan? Or are they sort of like, well, I guess I'll apply for a few grants and, you know, or have they really thought about it and like, no, I know that this is available and this is available and I'm going to do this first, then this, um, you know, things like that. And yeah, looking for someone that you you think is going to, uh, you know, you're hiring a colleague for the next 30 years. Right. So somebody that you think is going to be someone who will contribute to the department and the program in a positive way. It really depends on what the position is hiring for too. Like sometimes, you know, we've had people retire Mm -hmm. and we need to replace them. And so we're looking for people who can teach. Sometimes those people were teaching courses that have to be taught. Um, And so we need someone to replace them. So is this someone who could step into that role? Right. But at the same time, we do want them to bring themselves and, and something new, um, or co- if not brand new and distinct, complementary to what we offer. Right. Um, you know, yeah. So looking for for both of those things, really. Excellent. Well, Nadia, I finished out the podcast with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Okay. And uh, first question is, and this one's not random, but what's an issue within your field of kinesiology? that uh, most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? Oh. (laughs) Within my... I don't know that... 
there's anything in particular within my field. I think there's probably, it's more like general to academia. (laughs) That would be the stuff that gets under my skin. Yeah, not really anything specific with my field that I can think of. Um, You know, with academia, for for all the, the good stuff that, you know, all the perks in academia, there are a lot of things that are very challenging to navigate um, that, you know, kind of can take away from the joy of the the profession. That's for sure. Um, I don't know how specific you want me to get here, but uh, you know, you a something. lot of the, okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. I think that the biggest challenge with it that I find is the, the multiple hats that we're expected to wear. Um, you know, on, on one hand, you're a professor, um, but that also encompasses, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, well, most of us aren't trained to teach. So there's that whole uphill battle of, you know, getting comfortable with teaching and, and pedagogy and that kind of thing. Then there's the whole side of it of like student, ex- I don't want to say student experience, but like the, the human side of your students and, and, you know, a level of caretaking that I don't think any of us were prepared for either that I think has been getting more and more substantial over the last, you know, 10 plus years. Um, So that's a challenge. But then on top of that, you're a researcher, which means doing research, but grant writing and administrating and, all that stuff. And then you have your service load, which can be anything (laughs) from, you know, university communities to sitting on Senate to, you know, participating in your academic community outside of your university to contribute to that. So you end up just with, there are some days where I'm like, I don't know whether I'm coming or going here. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing today. I could bounce around between like six different things. And so like switching out those hats uh, quickly is, I think probably one of the things that I find the most challenging is, is managing to do all those jobs and do them well. Um, you know, because academics were used to excelling, you go through your undergrad and your master's and your PhD, like you're, you're used to being at, you know, the top of your class and really good at everything you do. And then you get into academia and you're like, maybe I'm not as good at all these things as I thought I was because you're managing so much more. Um, so yeah, that, that the multiple hats is probably the thing that I find the most challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I, same. I mean, I, <laughs> I all of that, uh, on yeah. the, I, I'm curious on the teaching side, mm-hmm. um, is your field one that is hard to get, uh, folks to agree to teach because there's, it's, I mean, I may be wrong on this, so please correct me. It's more lucrative to not do the teaching because there's other avenues where people can make money. You know, our our system in Canada is very different from in the United States. Um, so, for example, uh, my universe, our faculty is unionized. So, and I live in Windsor, Ontario, which is an automotive hub. So yeah. we have had, like, the unions in our area are very strong. So we don't face a lot of the same challenges with compensation and retention and things like that because we have 
you know, unions going to bat for us. We have really good compensation. We have really good benefits. We have great working environments and things like that. So that's not to say that there aren't precarious positions, like there certainly are, but in terms of getting a full-time position, I'm not sure that that differential in terms of finances is there. Although I've never actually interviewed for a job uh, like outside of academia. So I don't know, maybe it is, and I don't know about it. I, I don't know in, in my field, in my area, if that is a major issue. You know, most of my colleagues at Windsor and at other universities throughout, you know, Ontario, at least, they like almost all of the ones who started at the same time as I did are all still there. Um, and we do consulting with industry and we, cause we're, we're allowed to do that as part of our job. Um, my university gives us three days a month that we can consult, you know, do consulting work kind of thing. Um, so you can kind of get the best of both worlds. Um, so I don't, I haven't really noticed that that's not to say it doesn't exist, but I haven't, I haven't really come across that. And I haven't seen, you know, an exodus of my fellow faculty members in, in, biomechanics leaving to go do other things. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. No, that's great. Well, okay. So back on the teaching side, are there opportunities? Cause you're saying like, okay, we, we are asked to teach things. We, we don't necessarily have had like a teacher education or, or other, you know, related things that could just help us be better at that. Is that essentially like up to you then, like if you want to be better at this, then you have to kind of seek it out at the teaching. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I I don't, I don't think it's unique across PhD programs that you're there to learn how to do research. You're, you're rarely, you know, you might be a TA, you might attend a workshop or two, but like, you're not really there being trained to be an educator. Uh, You know, luckily at my institution, we have a center for teaching and learning and an office of open learning that put on tons of workshops, professional development about teaching and, you know, incorporating technology and and pedagogy and all kinds of stuff. So I've been able to do a lot of professional development in that area, thankfully right on campus um, because they offer these workshops year round, you know, and in the summer they do like a summer Institute where it's like a five day intensive of like multiple different workshops yeah, I, I've been lucky that way that my my institution, because we're, I think what you would call like a, a balanced institution, like we are research intensive, but we are also very like teaching is a very big part of what we do. You know, research and teaching are equally split in our workload. So 40% research, 40% teaching and 20 service. Yeah. So there, there is an emphasis on, on good teaching at our university. So hence the fact that they have these, these centers to kind of help us do that. So that's, that's been good um, that I've been able to, to do that. But yeah, I don't think I'm trying to think in my PhD program. I actually, I wasn't, I was a teaching assistant during my master's, but I wasn't during my PhD because my advisor had research funding and I, I, my funding came from a a research assistantship. So I didn't have to be a teaching assistant uh, to get my funding. So, you know, my, my exposure to learning to teach was pretty, you know, minimal. <laughs> so yeah, once I, once I got to Windsor, I, I started doing these workshops to help me sort of navigate all of, all of that. Great. Okay. Mm-hmm. Next question. 
being a woman in your field? Mm. Kind of floor is yours on that. Yeah. So I, I guess the, the challenges of being a female in what has historically been a male dominated field, you know, again, I think I've been really lucky um, because, you know, thinking from my undergrad, even like it was probably a pretty even split between male and female students. Um, we had a lot of female professors in my department and including at, at Windsor where I did my, my undergrad and master's and at Wade State where I did my PhD, there were females in leadership roles in my departments. So that was always there. And then, you know, now being at Windsor, same thing. Might have, I think we actually have more female professors than male. Our current dean is a female. Now she is the first female dean of our department. Um, but we, you know, we, we have females in most of our leadership positions are currently taken up by female faculty members. I would say for me, what's been more challenging is I frequently get mistaken as a grad student as opposed to being the faculty member. And I don't know that that's necessarily because I'm female. Maybe that plays a part of it. But th that part is, is more been my experience than you know, really navigating challenges of like, you know, people not taking me seriously or, or those sorts of things. Our, our network in biomechanics in Ontario, again, is like really evenly split between male and female. Um, there are a lot of female professors uh, in this area. So I, I haven't really come up against a lot of, I don't want to use the word misogyny, but that, yeah, that sure. sort of like, you know, uh, different treatment because I'm female. I don't know if I just got lucky about the places I've been, but I, I have not really encountered that in my experience. Or if I did, it's been very like one-off, like it's not a recurring experience that I'm jaded by my field being so, you know, what have you. Um, no, I think it's, it, it's been pretty evenly split. I guess the only place that I maybe have, have seen it is actually in my teaching role. Um, I have often felt like, in particular, the younger male students have pushed me in way, you know, either spoken to me in different tones or requested things of me that I know they probably wouldn't have spoken that way to my older male colleagues. You know, so there's been some of that. But in terms of my actual, you know, uh, you know, being my student experience as a student, my experience as a grad student, as a professor within the universe, like my peers, I haven't really encountered a whole lot of that. Count myself lucky that way. I've definitely heard stories from my colleagues who are, who are women about, about challenge, getting challenged and that being kind yeah. of a regular deal, unfortunately, in ways that I'm not, I'm not having to deal with. I'm not going to say it's like a lot of, you know, it's, it's one or two a semester. It's not like this is a constant onslaught of behavior, but it happens often enough that it's frustrating, um, you know, from coming from the student end where you think to yourself, especially like I, I started teaching, I started my job at the University of Windsor when I was 28 or 29. So I was pretty young myself and inexperienced and what have you. And I, I remember distinctly feeling, particularly then, it's gotten better as I've gotten older and the, the age gap between myself and my students is much bigger. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely, you know, 
emails worded in a certain way or various challenges or even things said to my face that I was like, really, you're going to say that? to me? <laughs> like, I know you wouldn't talk to, you know, Professor X this way. So yeah, there's, there's been some of that. But again, not, you know, not on a daily basis, maybe once or twice a semester. Um, but yeah, it, it does definitely happen. I was thinking mm-hmm. you should ride that uh, grad, you should ride that, that grad student thing as far as far as that's going to go <laughs> you know on the one hand my you know my my vanity kind of agrees with that yeah, like, right. that's good I still look young but at, at the same time though it's really frustrating when you go to a conference or oh. you know you're you're out on a data collection or something like that and and some people are like oh so like are you doing are you a grad student are you doing your PhD I'm like no I'm actually the professor or, you know, at a conference, I'm like, oh, who's your supervisor? I'm like, nobody. I'm the supervisor. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you mean my dean, you know. But <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I'll call my like, dean oh, yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. Linda's the dean of my department right now. And they'll be like, hmm. But, uh, yeah. So, in, in some ways, that's that's sort of frustrating. Um, yeah. You know, from a professional standpoint, it's it's frustrating. But, that that again, that doesn't happen that often. Sure. You know, for it to be a constant, you know, thorn in my side sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely can see that. You'd be like, because mm-hmm. uh, you, are you, uh, are you associate full professor at this point? I'm associate. I'm going, yeah. I'm probably going to go up for full in the next couple of years. So. Gotcha. Yeah, that would be mm-hmm. like, uh, Gresson's like, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, uh, associate professor. Yes, thank you for addressing me correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So. All right, let's get, we'll get some, uh, some fun questions here. What is the most impractical item of clothing you own? Well, I'm going to ask, do you ask this of all your guests, mm-hmm. male, yes. female, and otherwise? Okay. Yes. Oh yeah. Then I will answer it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that's a fair, that's a fair response. <laughs> I got you. I honestly don't know. Probably a pair of shoes, but I don't, especially after three years of, well, you know, two years of pandemic teaching and then a year on sabbatical, I mainly live in like these days. So I don't know. I don't know right now that I have really like impractical clothing. Also, I don't have patience for that stuff. I'm not cool with being uncomfortable. Um, but so if I have to, if I had to say, I would probably say like a couple pairs of heels that are like every time I wear them out to a wedding or something, I'm like, why do I even have these? These are so <laughs> uncomfortable. That's, that's probably it. I gotcha. That's yeah. good. Yeah. It's a, it's a soccer Jersey for me. I still have a high school soccer Jersey that it has my name on it. It's, it's so oh, nice. I don't, I don't need it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Impr- oh, you know what? Now I'm thinking, do I have anything that's like frivolous? Nothing that I would really consider like ridiculous, frivolous. Um, So, yeah. Okay. Fair (laughs) enough. All right. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the closest, the closest I've come maybe. So we do this every year uh, at the end of the academic year, our department puts on like a scholar's evening to celebrate, Mm -hmm. you know, students who got, honor roll and scholarships and whatever. And we used to do, (laughs) it's always the faculty who, who serve as MCs. And we used to like almost compete to outdo each other with different themes every year. Uh And one year, a couple of faculty were, I think they were like, you know, it was sort of thing of if we made a movie of our faculty who would play, which actors would play. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
And the the one that they chose for me was Claire Danes. Oh, so okay. yeah, and I was like, I wouldn't have thought of that right away. Yeah, but okay, I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take it. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's that's probably it. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I like I like the I like that. There's a a healthy a nice competitiveness between coming <laughs> yeah. up with stuff. Yeah, yeah. We had some we had some fun with that several <laughs> years ago. Yeah. <laughs> very nice all right what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie i like so many different movies for different reasons um you know i'm i'm a fan i do enjoy fantasy stuff so i love the harry potter series i love the lord of the rings um kind of got into the marvel universe for a while uh enjoyed that um but i'm also a big fan of just like mindless comedy Oh, um, okay. I'm ready. All so, right. yeah, because I, you know, I always had friends who were like, you know, oh, have you watched uh, CSI or this, that? And I'm like, no, I don't want anything cerebral. I have to use my brain all day long. If I'm relaxing, it's going to be like South Park and The Simpsons. Nice. And, you know, stuff that I don't, you know, I, I that I don't have to think too deeply on. <laughs> Yeah, I like I love Will Ferrell's movies. Like mm. Eurovision is is or the Fire Saga. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember what exactly the movie's called, but I think it's Eurovision Song Contest. Anyway, I love that movie. It's mm. ridiculous. I but I think the music is awesome. Nice. <laughs> and, and I watch it. I we so yeah, we watch a lot of Will Ferrell Step Brothers. Oh, Step Brothers, of course. Oh gosh, we watch that all the time. Um the first anchor things man. like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Anchorman. So yeah, I do I do enjoy those. Love the James Bond series, like particularly oh. with Daniel Craig. I'll tell you what I don't enjoy like mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. Is anything that's like uh like horror movies or even thrillers. I am oh. not a fan. Ah. <laughs> I do not enjoy that at all. Mm. Um yeah, not my cup of tea. Yeah. Did you have yeah. a was there a movie where you realized that like like I, this is not, this is not going to work. Yeah. I, so when I was really young, uh, like probably nine ish, I watched, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh yeah. And, and like, didn't sleep for <laughs> months on end. Um, so that, you know, really kind of put me off that. And then later on, as I got older, I tried watching a few, uh, I think I watched one of the Saw movies. Oh, with, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, no, I, like, I can't, I don't need imagery to go right. along with like my own vivid imagination. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. <laughs> we're done here. So yeah, I, I don't, I, that stuff just doesn't do it for me. I don't like that at all. It's funny. You mentioned the, like the, you know, a CSI or something like that. Cause my wife is also an academic and, and, and a frequently same thing. Like she's reading all day. And so the last thing she wants is, something she has to like really either pay attention to or, you know, really Mm -hmm. think about, but she'll watch some types of police procedurals just because, you know, like it's going to be figured out. So it's Mm. like, so she liked the likes kind of the beats of that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. Just knowing that it's like, it's going to resolve and, you know, they'll, they'll figure it out and maybe Mm -hmm. brings her peace, I guess, I I think a little bit. Um, Yeah. I do actually enjoy, I'm an avid reader though. Oh, great. So even though like, oh, is it? Okay. It's about books. Yeah. Favorite books. Okay. 
favorite yeah. books. Okay, that's easy. Um, okay. So, <laughs> I'm speaking of fantasy. Um, yeah. I love I love historical fiction, mm. um, and I also love fantasy in terms of like vampires and witches and things like that. And if you can roll all of that together, that's mm. magic. So okay. series like uh, the Outlander books are okay. among my favorite. I'm, I'm on the 10th book now for like, I read the series through probably the entire 10 book series, probably six, seven times at this point. Oh um, my gosh. Nadia, <laughs> those books are like a thousand pages each. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yes, they are. Uh, yeah, I've, I've read those repeatedly. Um, I love the uh, Discovery of Witches series, mm. yeah. the All Souls trilogy by Deborah Harkness. Um, same thing, vampires, witches, time travel. Mm. <laughs> it's like, it's just chef's kiss. I love it. Um, Have you so read the those, historian? Those, I'm trying I think to think. It's Elizabeth about, I don't know. Kostova. I think it's because I I've read it many many years. It's it's been out for a long time, but I think it's like a mm. like a um like a retelling of Dracula, basically kind of thing. Oh oh, wait a minute. I think I I think I started reading that this summer. I was oh. at my brother's house in Newfoundland, and they had a copy of it. Yeah. And I needed a another book to. I was between book series at the time, and I think I started reading. Is that where they were? the they uh that book that they the journal that that sort of like magically appears to these people I, at some point i think so it's been a long time okay but. yeah i didn't make it all the way through mm -hmm. um but uh i did read a good chunk of it it was it was pretty good i enjoyed yeah. it um but yeah i didn't get all the way through it so um but yeah so those two are probably among my favorites there are some other you know series um that I've enjoyed. I used to be really into uh, Steve Barry's books. Um, <laughs> That's my wife too. Yeah. All yeah. Those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are really good. It's another series about like supernatural stuff. Um, Light mages. What is her name? That's going to bother me. Lori Forrest. Oh, Lori I don't Forrest. know that person's name. Yeah. So it's, yeah, really interesting sort of take on like a heavily have like social justice theme running heavily through it, but centered around like magical mythical <laughs> stuff. So it's really good. Um, yeah. So those are kind of the ones that I, I gravitate towards. Cool. Do you have a favorite of just, to, this is always a kind of fun question. Do you have a favorite of the Harry Potter books? Uh, definitely the first one, because it was oh. like the introduction to that world. And sure. It just like hooked me in. I liked the Order of the Phoenix and the Deathly Hallows. Those are probably my three favorite. Yeah, I think I think just the first one because I had heard so much about it, and I was like, I think I was around twenty in my twenties when I started reading them. Like this is kind of ridiculous, but it sounds pretty good. So again, magic. So I'm gonna yeah, read yeah. it, and I just got totally sucked in. And then when the first movie came out, I remember I, I dragged my husband to see it. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, I always read the books before I see the movies because the books are just always better, more detail. You know, I just always like them better. And I remember mm -hmm. going to see the movie and like came out at the end practically in tears because I was like, I have never seen a movie based on a book that got it so right. Like everything, the way I envisioned it, it was that and then better. 
Yeah. I, I just loved it. So I really enjoyed that one. I still go back and watch that every now and then. Um, so yeah, really, really enjoyed that. All right. Other questions. Uh, do you have a sports fandom? Not anymore, really. I used to be uh, a really big Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Mm. And I still consider myself a fan, but I just, after... They broke your heart so too often, Nadia. Too many, too many, yeah. And I, I don't want to say any of that because it's game five tonight and we That's all right. are, you know, hoping. But I just, I, I, and I'm, you know, I got busy with work and kids and just kind of was like, if I have time to sit and chill, I'm not watching hockey. I'm going to like do something else that yeah. I'm more into. Um, so that would probably be the closest one is Maple Leafs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? New Zealand. Yeah. New Zealand, Hawaii. Oh God. There's so many, a lot of Europe still have been to Europe, but not nearly enough of it. Scotland, Iceland, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, like that, that area. Mm -hmm. Um, my dad's family is, um, like our ancestry is from Romania. Mm -hmm. So I would love to get to see that at some point. Croatia. I've every time I have friends every once in a while who will show up at on the Croatian coast and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I had no mm -hmm. idea it was that incredible. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have friends who, um, a good friend of ours whose family is Croatian and they still have a family home there and she goes, she's a school teacher. So she goes with her son all summer, every summer. And, you know, she's often invited us to come out for a week and, you know, visit and see it. And they'd take us around and stuff. And we just haven't been able to make it happen. But yeah, I mean, she shows us photos of where they, they stay and it's just beautiful. Yeah. So yeah, one day. Oh, I haven't been to Spain. I want to get to Spain, Portugal. Yeah. You're just reading a country list right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just all of them everywhere. <laughs> I'd like to get back to Italy. Uh, I've been yeah. there a couple of times and I, I really like to see more of Italy. Um, been to France a few times, same thing. I'd like to see more of different regions of France than I've been to. Where yeah. in Italy have you been? Been to Milan. We had a layover there. So my husband and I went to, he's, his family is Lebanese and we went to visit his, his relatives there several years ago and the layover for our flight was in Milan. So mm. we decided that we were going to, because his, his mom and brother and some other family members were coming as well on this trip. When we found out that the layover was in Milan, we were like, well, we got it. We're, we're not staying in an airport. We got to get out and see this. Mm -hmm. So we went a couple days ahead so that we could spend a couple days in Milan before continuing the journey onto Lebanon. We went with my family, my parents, we rented a farmhouse in Tuscany. Yes. And did, you know, the Tuscan countryside and, you know, Siena and Florence and just awesome. <laughs> it was so great. So, yeah. But, yeah, I'd, li I'd like to see Rome. I'd like to get further down south. I'd like to do the Amalfi Coast. You know, mm -hmm. there's just so much that is there that, yeah, I'd really like. I'd like to see Venice, um, you know. Yeah. I don't know if there's a really big one. So it's not really a kitchen mess up, but semi-related. So 
on our uh, first wedding anniversary, we had saved like the the top of the cake and all that yep. kind of stuff. We had mm-hmm. a bottle of champagne and our parents came over so we could like share the cake topper with them and, and, you know, whatever. And so they were downstairs and I went upstairs to get everything. And I had like a tray, I was carrying a tray and I had the champagne glasses on it and something went sideways and the entire tray of six champagne flutes you know, dropped everywhere. Carpet is soaked. I can't remember if the cake fell. I don't think so. I think it was just drinks at that point. Oh my! But God. I was so mortified and upset. I like went up into my room and was crying. <laughs> I was so sad and embarrassed and, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, so that's not really like cooking kitchen mess up, but definitely food related. That's or, a good you know. story. Yeah. <laughs> good story now. <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Could have been worse, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. the cake survive, or was just the it was just the champagne that got? I honestly don't remember. I think the cake survived. I think because that tray wasn't nearly big enough to to bring all of that down at once. So I think the cake was okay. I think it was just the champagne. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, I gotcha. Someone comes to Windsor. <laughs> where's yeah. like okay? You have to eat here. No questions asked. This is this is mm. the best thing you're going to find here or something like that. My favorite Italian place is no longer <clears throat> open. Uh, they closed several years ago, but that would have been the place that I would send everybody. There are some great places in and around town, though, that I could I could rattle off a few. It sure. depends what, you know, somebody would be looking for. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, if you want the brewery distillery experience, there's a great place called Wolfhead. Um, that's a ways out of town. Like it's, it's out in the County. Um, but it's, they, uh, distill their own vodka and I think it's whiskey as well, but they have an incredible restaurant. It, it's such great food. Um, and it's really neat because you can get little flights of, you know, whiskey tasting or vodka tasting, you know, things like that. So if you're into that, that's a cool thing. If you are uh, vegan or plant-based, there's a fantastic restaurant called Nooch. <clears throat> which has absolutely outstanding um, vegan food that you would never realize is not or is plant-based. Um, their, their food is absolutely incredible. Those are probably the, the two or three that are like my go-tos for, for that sort of thing. Um, but there's lots of great spots, you know, areas in, in Windsor where, you know, Erie street is sort of like where all the Italian or a lot of the Italian restaurants are. So, you know, and cafes and gelato and all that. So if you're into that, you go to Erie Street. Um, Walkerville is sort of more of an artsy, uh, you know, kind of area. They do some really cool stuff in the summer where they shut down the streets and the restaurants and stuff are open and you can walk around and there's vendors and whatever. So that's really cool. A lot of wineries in the county. Um, So there are tons of those if you're willing to make the drive that you can go. And a lot of them have restaurants too. Um, so you can do wine tasting and eat and, you know, a lot of them are on the Lake Erie coast. So really great views, um, you know, that sort of thing. So there's lots, there's lots of places to go nearby. And then there's Detroit, you know, we're, we're right across the border from Detroit and there's tons to do over there too. So yeah, it depends what they're looking for, I guess. It's kind of, is there nearby as well, um, <clears throat> like hiking or other out- outdoor activities since you're on the lake? Yeah, um, there are hiking trails in the area. We haven't done a whole lot of them, but there's uh, our Ojibwe Nature Center, which is kind of like an urban, uh, it, well, 
it's urban, but it's like a protected area. So there's a nature center. There are trails there. Point Pelee National Park is nearby. That's pretty great um, in terms of like hiking and wildlife and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we are right on the Detroit River and Lake St. Clair. So there's lots of opportunities for uh, like stand up paddle boarding, um, which is a lot of fun. If you, we don't have a boat, but if you know someone who's got a boat or you have one, there's lots of great spots uh, like marinas where that have restaurants or even, uh, you know, an, an area. Lake St. Clair is actually pretty shallow for a long way. So there's like spots we call them like the swimming hole where boats will congregate and people just like hang out on rafts in the water for the afternoon in the summer, um, which is pretty fun. So, yeah. All right. Last question, Nadia. One piece of art uh, could be books, movies, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? I don't know if it's recently, but I'll say the one that like, I've, I guess had the most like visceral reaction to because I'm not a huge, I've never really been like an art lover, paintings and, and whatnot. Like I appreciate the talent, but it's just not, I don't like, I'm like, oh yeah, that's nice. And then I move on sort of thing. I am impressed by sculpture because it just seems so like such a hard thing to do. But uh, probably the, the most art that I'm exposed to is architecture because my husband's an architect. Um, and of course, you know, anytime we go anywhere, we're always, you know, looking at buildings or, or seeing stuff and whatever, but there's, there's a French architect um, from the art nouveau era, Hector Guimard and his artwork. I think I was like, it was like a gut punch when I saw it. Um, his, his architecture, it's very um, sort of like, gothic but kinetic it's it's really sort of flowy and and so cool almost like if you made a building out of like you know when you blow out a candle and the smoke kind of like pearls up and makes weird it's like that but in a building form and I remember seeing it like when I, I'd never heard of it until uh you know I met my husband and he's you know just through his interests and whatever came across it and I was like wow and so when we've been to Paris we, you know we've got to see some of his he's the one who designed you know those fancy uh, metro signs in Paris, the ones with like the big awnings. And he's done a lot of that and a lot of the sort of like sculpture stuff near the subways too. But he's got some buildings there as well. One of the museums, Musée d'Orsay, which used to be a, a train station, they have a lot of his like furniture and accessories and things like that that he designed. And that stuff is is outstanding. So I, I would say that Hector Guimard's um, architecture and and design work. <laughs> all right nadia we are done thank you so much <laughs> all right this was, this was a, i really enjoyed talking to you thank you me too thank you for having me on i appreciate it and it was a lot of fun such a pleasure chatting with nadia for the show I wish her all the best in her continuing research and hope to catch up with her in person again very soon. And I hope she continues to brush off those piano skills more often. I mean, home sweet home is not going to play itself. Am I right? <laughs> this week's rave is really a classic in all the best senses of the word. It is the Academy Award Best Picture winner for the year of 1930. What? All Quiet on the Western Front, starring Lou Ayers, among many others, and based on the famous novel by Eric Maria Ray Marquet, 
and directed by Lewis Milestone. It's available on streaming platforms. A bit of a backstory here. This past year, one of the most Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning films of the year was a brand-new French and German-language version of All Quiet on the Western Front. Seeing that it was out and available to watch, I took it upon myself to reread the original novel, which I quite enjoyed, and then watched the new version, a TV movie version from the 1970s that was just okay, and once again, the original from 1930, which I'd seen many years ago, but it had been a long time, and it was very much worth it to see it again. The general story of the film and book is that it is told from the viewpoint of Paul Baumer, a teenage German soldier who heads off to fight on the front lines in World War I. It begins with him very motivated and eager to fight for his country, and then devolves into him hating war and being completely broken by the experience. Lou Ayers played the title role of Paul in the 1930 version. This film being filmed and released in that year puts it right at the beginning of the sound movie era in Hollywood. One of the reasons that this movie works so well, considering that the sound isn't all that great for today's standards, is that it pretty much removed much of the movie music in it. It has an almost documentary feel in its images and sound, and the war scenes tend to be harrowing and long, but not at all boring or uninteresting. And you're very quickly made aware of how terrible war experiences are. One of the best scenes, and parts of the book as well, is the experience of Paul heading back to his hometown on leave. In both the film and the book, it is very clear that Paul is a very different person upon the return, and in particular, has no time for the rah-rah nature of his teachers talking up the war experience without mentioning the horrors of what possible brand new soldiers were going to get into. These are brilliantly done. And lastly, this work is considered one of the great anti-war novels and films, and it still holds up. It very much makes the point that it is the youngest and least knowing folks who get pushed to the front lines, that those in power or are too old to serve are the biggest cheerleaders without having to do the dirty work and the folly and terror of the experience. It also includes one of the most brilliant and harrowing endings in movie history that still holds up 93 years after its release. If you're up for it, and I hope you are, check out the 1930 version of All Quiet on the Western Front. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.